hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Welcome Carly and Cece to our latest Books with Hook segment. Let us dive straight in. Carly, would you like to begin with our first letter? Absolutely. Here we go. Dear Cece, Carly, and Bianca, I've been binging your podcast on my morning trail walks for the past few months and first wanted to thank you for creating such a useful and enlightening tool for writers. I once tweeted that this is podcast gold and I stand by my statement. I was especially excited when the Books with Hook segment was introduced as Cece is on my two query list. So without further ado, this query is for Cece. Lovers and Leavers, 85,000 Words, is an upmarket fiction chronicling that one relationship, the toxic yet euphoric storm, most find impossible to shape. In the same vein as Normal People by Sally Rooney, Lovers and Leavers mirrors the scathing realism of Tell Me Lies by Carola Lovering. Most love stories don't have happy endings, and the people in those stories, some are already broken. At the first party freshman year, Harrison walks up to Charlie with the confidence she is desperate desperate to find in herself. His attention validates her place in this new collegiate world, and Charlie stands straighter because of it. Some break silently. Harrison, a privileged frat boy who takes after his womanizing father, uses girls and parties to distract from the truth of his mother's terminal illness. Intent on maintaining his infamous facade, Harrison doesn't tell anyone about his mother's worsening health, anyone that is except Charlie. And some, some chatter loudly. For years, Charlie and Harrison teeter 
here on the brink of something meaningful, coming together only to combust time and time again. With poignant regret, they recalled the irreparable mistakes that broke them and the scars neither can forget. I'm a debut novelist based in Austin, Texas. My stories have been named prize winners in Writer's Digest and Tulip Tree, as well as featured in literary magazines such as Sunlight Press, Heartland Society of Women, and Laura Fiction. Prior to launching my career in brand marketing, I was publicity intern at SparkPoint Studio. I graduated from Santa Clara University with a degree in English literature, where I was named the 2017 Canterbury Scholar. Familiar with the trials of modern romance, I always wanted to find a story that fit my lived experiences. That story didn't exist, so I created it. All the best, MMM. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. All right, Cece, what did you think? I really liked this query letter. Okay, so this author is saying that her novel is like Normal People by Sally Rooney and Tell Me Lies. I love both these novels. I read both of them, really enjoyed both of them. They are, however, totally different stories, which is fine. You get to use two comps that are completely different. In many ways, that's a good thing. The problem, though, is that I don't quite get how a book can be like Normal People and like Tell Me Lies without a little bit more of an explanation on what about each of them is standing out. Like, I get the scathing realism, but that's, in terms of normal people, Marianne and Connor are like soulmates. Yes, they have that intense hormone infused relationship that you can only find in in a connection that you make as a teenager and then you grow up together, but they both love each other very much. And in terms of Tell Me Lies, I, I forget, I think it's Lucy thinks she loves Steven, but he's like a total psychopath. And she starts hurting herself because of him. She develops an eating disorder because of his horrible ways. And so these are really, really different stories. And I am all for using different comps, but it is important to explain what about each of these comps mirrors your story, because I'm excited to read, whether it's not in the vein of Sally Rooney or Carola Lovering, I'm excited to read this. I just kind of want to know what we're talking about exactly in terms of the plot, which actually brings me to my second point. I feel like there's a lot you can convey in a query letter, which is one of the reasons why it's such a challenging thing. And a lot of authors try to do character, voice, and plot. If you can do all three, by all means do it. My hat is off to you. However, given the space constraint, I don't think that's very realistic necessarily. So I think the most important thing to convey is plot. Plot always comes first. It's number one. Second thing is character. Third is voice. So here we have voice first. It's very voicey, very beautifully written. Like the, some people are already broken lines and some shatter. Like that's beautiful, right? So so very voicey. I love it. Character is also very strong here. There's this line that specifically stood out to me, the confidence she's desperate to find in herself. Like, come on, who can't relate to that, right? Like I immediately went, yep, I remember being a teenager. I remember being a young adult. That's how it felt like. And, you know, other beautiful lines as well. So that's great in terms of character development. But what I really wanted to know is plot. And what I'm getting from the story is that Charlie and Harrison, the whole trope is going to be like the will they or won't they, right? Which is a good trope. It's a timeless trope. It, it can be done in many ways. Thing is, I don't see a fresh twist. I'm trying to figure out how this can set apart from all the other will they or won't they novels. Totally get that it's a toxic relationship. Totally get that, you know, he has his mom's thing going on and she's the only one who knows that secret. She's clearly like, there's a line where, she, where the author says Charlie stands straighter because of it, it being his validation. So she clearly has things going on in her own life. But again, that's, that's just background, right? Like, I want to know what the twist is here. So I think that the segment is called Books with Hooks for a reason. So one thing I would strongly suggest to 
to all writers is to highlight the hook in their query letter. If they don't see it, then get like 10 different friends, writer friends to read it, you know, check with writing community on Twitter. It's really, really important that you know what the hook in your story is. And the hook has to be really fresh, really original, and it has to pique the reader's curiosity. By the way, to wrap this up, the final paragraph, great. I'm really excited to read this. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. I would just like to tell you now that my husband has been brainstorming. He has a rather weird sense of humor, and he wanted to know if we look at crime novels, if we will call the segment Books with Crooks, and if we look at books from chefs, if we will call the segment Books with Cooks. Okay, now we can move on. Carly? And our lifestyle ones should be Books with Looks. So, you know, we, we can wrap it all up with cutesy rhymes, of course. Okay. Yeah. I, when I was reading this, we obviously read these in advance to kind of prepare our notes. I was definitely thinking this was a CC book. So I'm, I'm glad she had a wonderful reaction to this. So my notes basically along the same lines. My giant question here is just the conflict, what's keeping them apart. And I think that CC kind of hit on that. Like what is the hook that's unique about this? And I think that's really what I was trying to find. So yeah, my big question is what's keeping them apart, right? Anytime we have a love story, the romance genre has been around forever. So um, obviously this is not a traditional classic quote unquote romance, which is fine. It wants to be more at market and it sounds like it is, which is great. But there are many ways that we need to learn from the romance industry about what is keeping these people apart, right? And so I think that we just need to figure that, that part out. And then what's the unique hook? Exactly like Cece said, I totally agree with that. I found the query too voicey. Again, could just be my take. I think Cece's right. We need to focus on plot is number one of the things that I always say on, on the podcast is when I'm pitching a book, I sell plot, right? I can't sell feelings. I have to sell a plot. So I like it when the query is very plot driven. Because that's what gets me excited about, you know, knowing it's unique for the marketplace. So other than that, I didn't have too many notes. Again, like Cece said, I thought the author bio paragraph was great. At the end of the day, I think that there were some lines that were pretty vague. But again, this is a romance and a love story. And I know that things are going to unfold. But the vagueness with the irreparable mistakes that broke them and the scars neither can forget. Like, I think it's a beautiful line. It just doesn't really tell me a lot about the actual book. So for me, I just would have liked a little bit more in that regard. Wonderful. Thanks, Carly. Okay, Cece, there's opening pages. What was your take on those? Just as voicey as the query. And by the way, this is a great example. Like I like voicey query letters, right? And then it's it's not Carly's taste. So it's just best to be as neutral, I think, as possible. Like obviously, if you're sending it to me and you know my taste, then by all means, tailor it. But it's great to know that there's like different opinions because it does mean that, you know, the more neutral you keep your query letter, the safer you'll be because nobody will complain that it's not voicey. Anyway, just, just a general tip. But Really, really liked the pages. Very voicey. So for the listener, we are in college. Charlie is our protagonist, um, at least for this first opening chapter. That's her POV. And we're going to see the night where she met Harrison. We know this because the first line right away is, I met Harrison on my first night of college. So Charlie and Ariana, her roommate, go to a party. And you can tell by certain carefully placed lines that Charlie is trying to figure out how to be, which is something that I love reading about in characters. Right in the first paragraph, there's a line that says, so this is what having a roommate is going to be like. And it might seem like the most innocent line in the world, but I read that and I was like, huh, she's studying people because she's trying to figure out what the rules are, the unwritten social rules. She probably feels like everybody else gets it and maybe she doesn't get it. And then the next page is a line that says, if all these strangers found a way to become a synchronous note in the soundtrack of something as alive as college, then maybe I could too. So that was another hint. 
you know, pretty soon my hints, my hints are confirmed because we do get a line that says that she's trying to prove to everyone else and to herself that she belongs. The problem is she feels like she doesn't. So I like the undercurrent. It's interesting because the author is nailing undercurrents, which is something that typically you layer in later, or at least, you know, that's what I've noticed when I talk to my creators, but she's nailing undercurrents. What I think is missing is actually the emotion on the surface, meaning it's not even the emotion on the surface, just the character-driven conflict maybe isn't the right word, but the character-driven something on the surface. Because I I don't quite get where her insecurities are coming from specifically. It is a little generic right now. And I get that the author probably, I'm assuming, but I think this is a fair assumption, didn't want to like spill the beans because we we always say, don't do that. Make sure to, you know, carefully unfold your story. Don't, you know, you have to be a little manipulative. So that's fair. But maybe just a hint every here and there about something that's specific. It could even be like her not letting her brain think of and then insert whatever, you know, some hint of the of the trauma or of the background or it doesn't necessarily have to be trauma, but my mind always goes to trauma. So I think that I need more specificity here in terms of her character development because this does seem to be character driven and character driven stories are great. As a reader, I love them, but selling them is really, really, really hard. So you do need a lot of specificity and a lot of things that are different. That's something that I actually wanted to say in terms of the comps she mentioned, like with normal people, the way, I mean, first of all, Sally Rooney, right? So she can write anything she wants because she's perfect. But also Marianne and Connor shared a really complicated background. His mom was her housekeeper. So that right away has, you know, a whole bunch of tension going on there. So we know, and we know this right away. We learned this right away. And then later when they go to university, their roles are reversed because she becomes popular and he becomes kind of like the, the outcast loser person, or at least not popular. So there's a role reversal. And here, all I get is this person, her name is Charlie, at a party. And that's great. It's it's a good setting for opening pages. But I do think that I need something more, especially when clearly this is going to be a love at first sight thing. Because we do see her looking at Harrison. And here's the thing. Love at first sight. I'm just going to say this. I think love at first sight might be the hardest thing to pull off in an opening scene. We don't know your character. We haven't connected to this character. We don't know what's inside their head. We don't understand what makes them fun in love with someone and you want me to believe that they looked at someone and they fell in love with that person it's really hard doesn't mean it can't be done but it's really 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 hard so you know set yourself up for a big challenge here doesn't mean it can't be done just does mean that I would I would try to flesh out some more specificity here and even reconsider if it has to be love at first sight to be perfectly honest those are my notes awesome thanks Cece Carly what did you think I kind of loved this whole nostalgia angle. One of the things I think that we I would have really liked to know is what year we're in. I was getting very strong mid-2000s vibes with the bandage dresses and the type of alcohol and everything like that. So when we're kind of introduced to the scene, I'd like to just put a timestamp on that. That would help me understand the scope of this relationship and kind of like what we're setting out to accomplish here. So there is a little intro. There's like a part one, which is a little bit of like a prologue, I would say to the, to the author, just cut that. I don't think we need that. I would just strike through. And then we start with freshman year, chapter one. And this is where I'd put the timestamp and this is where I would start. I know we talked, I think last episode about, or one of our episodes about what font used for texting. And there is some texting in here. So just a reminder to listen to that episode. I don't know the name of the font, but yes, there's a font there to use for texting. So a reminder, that would be great. I also got very strong, sweet, bitter vibes from this. Again, the mid 2000s nostalgia, like the newbie in a, in a different world. Obviously that's a bit different because we're 
we're not really sure like why the character's running away and it's a New York kind of culinary scene. But I got the very like, we don't know this person's secret. We don't know what their naivete comes from or if, even if it is naivete, maybe it is trauma. Like we're not sure what that is. And again, we don't need to say it all in the opening first five pages, but I do want to know what the secrets are, a hint of the secret. Because I was just getting a bit like, this is a small town girl in a big city. Whereas like, we just need something a little, you know, a little bit layered there. Another approach to that other angle, another secret would be great. The other thing, which I think Cece kind of was getting at and nailing was the idea that we're writing a scene that is very average, right? We're writing a scene where we are at a university college party. Many of us, myself included, have been at said party. Like that's the nostalgia angle of this. But again, we need to know like what the hook is here. And when we're writing something that is an average day or an average party, in fiction, it's the, it's the specificity that makes it unique. It's the this Victorian house, you know, the, the frat boy house. Like what is unique about this house? Or what is surprising about this house, right? And I think we were just in a very nostalgic, predictable scene when I just would have liked to be surprised a little bit more. So I think there's a lot going on here that's extremely interesting. And I, yeah, I, I love the nostalgia coming of age stuff. So that part hooks me. I just want to know what is especially unique about, about this love story. Awesome. Uh, Cece, you had something else to add to that? I totally forgot to mention the prologue. I'm so sorry. I agree. I, we should cut it or like add way more intrigue because it's very well written, but it's not like piquing my curiosity more than the first chapter. And also I noticed something that is like the smallest thing in the world, but I didn't want to share with the author. Ariana's her roommate. And there's a part where she says, Charlie says, I drank up her familiar smile, the one I'd known through missing teeth and braces and the sticky crest white strips we religiously applied until our teeth stung, which I take to mean that she and Ariana were friends growing up because colleges don't do that. Like they don't let you be paired up in your freshman year with someone you know. The idea is that you have to like get out of your comfort zone. So of course it could have happened. Like maybe they snuck, they were sneaky and they found a way around it. But like, I would just address that. I don't know. I got confused. It, It wouldn't have made me stop reading or anything, but it was a small thing that made me go, huh. I thought that the bouncer thing was already quite unusual, like a college party with bouncers. But, you know, parties are parties. They can be weird um, and different. But the roommate thing kind of gave me pause. Okay, awesome. We've got a question from a listener we were going to address later down the line. But based on what Carly said earlier about how when she pitches an editor, she pitches based on plot. I actually thought this was a good place to just put the question in here. So the listener said, I'd love to know whether agents ever contact possible editors about a submission they love before offering representation to the author. I'm not referring to actually submitting to the editor at that point, which I know would be wrong, but rather I've often wondered whether they ever feel out the possibility of editor interest before offering representation. My take on that is a couple of things. I do think there's a confidentiality issue. I believe obviously the rights and the, you know, the confidentiality and everything like that exists with the author. So I would never, I don't think I would ever really do that because I would want to let the author have the ball in their court. Because if they didn't sign with me and they went with somebody else and then that editor was like, oh, I've like heard something about, I just wouldn't want to muddy the waters at all. I like it to be really pure in that sense. And again, if, if they weren't represented by me officially on paper, I wouldn't do that. That said, I'm always networking and always talking to editors and so I always have an idea of what people are looking for so I always have that in the back of my mind when I am considering things but I like to be really respectful of those boundaries. Cece anything to add to that or about the same answer? I 100% agree what I would say is that if you read something and there's one specific element like a very generic element especially in nonfiction, like I don't know maybe you're concerned that the author's platform is too academic I don't know you might ask around but you'll probably just ask your colleagues we pick each other's brains all the time 
time. We go, does anyone know of editors who, like, especially me, like I'm newer at this, right? So, so we actually do confer without any specifics, of course, but we do typically do it with each other because we all network anyway. And that way, like you're getting everybody else's research too. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Cece, why don't you read us the next query letter? Dear Bianca, Cece, and Carly, Silicon Valley Gardens is a completed 77,000 word upmarket novel with speculative elements intended for an adult audience. It is similar to the work of Sarah Addison Allen, if she wrote about Silicon Valley, and combines the mundane with the fantastic in a manner similar to Kafka on the shore by Haruki Murakami. It offers an ensemble cast with sibling love stories and social commentary similar to Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. I have learned so much by listening to your podcast, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, and would love to have the opportunity to receive feedback from Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira. Jake Ullman, new hire at Apple, falls for Dr. Kelly Mabel, Apple in-house physician, and discovers that the key to unlocking her guarded heart lies in the 42 devil plants he finds in his garden. Though the plants are not magical at all, he enlists any help he can find to name the plants and figure out how they will draw him to Kelly, including his sister Sarah and his co-worker Bashan Kalra. As more people are brought under his roof, Jake will be forced to question the assumptions that he has made about each of them and examine his own shortcomings. Facing the puzzle of a new job, new friends, new family relationships, and his devil plants, Jake begins to wonder if a relationship with Kelly will ever just work out, while his friends urge him to reach for the life he desires. A story of how we confront our weaker selves and our ambitions as we move through the day-to-day, Silicon Valley Gardens infuses the millennial world with a little glitter. I am an as-yet-unpublished writer, but I have been writing for myself for many years. I have taken multiple writing courses, and in addition to this novel, I have written short stories and am currently working on another novel in the same genre. My other career is as a physician assistant, though for the past year, I have also been a distance learning concierge to my children. A few years ago, I traded the lake shores of Minnesota for the beaches of California, and am now trying to learn to surf without impressive results. Thank you for your time, TCB. Awesome. Thanks, Cece. Okay, Carly, what did you think? I am obsessed with this title. I think this is the coolest title, (laughs) Silicon Valley Gardens, Obsessed. So interesting and yet kind of magical, but like earthy, but also techie. I'm like, this is doing so much and I just love it. So kudos to you for an awesome, awesome title. Okay, now I want to get into the comp situation here. So we have Upmarket, Sarah Addison Allen, the Murakami, Sense and Sensibility. We just we got a lot going on here. Another comp I thought was missing was The Circle by David Eggers. I think that could have been a, a good comp potentially. Again, I haven't read the whole book or anything like that. But yeah, I think there's, there are more techie books that probably could have been better comped here with the the tech setting. So yeah, I think we just needed to smooth that out a little bit. I also feel like this is actually a much more literary novel than upmarket novel. Again, I know we're not getting into the pages yet, but I would probably think this is more literary than upmarket. So that's just my take based on, again, the comps and and what I'm seeing here. The next thing, you can't call the company Apple. You got to call it something else. I think that's a legal issue just kind of waiting to happen, which is easily avoided. I think in the circle 
Google even, they just, they call the tech company something else. We kind of know it's Facebook essentially, but, but they just call it something else or it's Facebook or Google. They're all the same, right? They're just these campus buildings where people do tech stuff, which again, I don't think working at Apple is the point. I think the point is that the it's Sorry, a tech company. Carly, can I just interject there? So, so just to make it clear in our listeners' minds, if they have a character who's chatting to other characters on Facebook or they are using Twitter, it's fine to name it then. But if they're working at that company, they should make it something else. Is that what you're saying? I believe yes, because why invite yourself to legal trouble? <laughs> because there is potential just for defamation, because if this character has an uncomfortable situation working at this company and it's a novel, of course, there's going to be uncomfortable situations working at this company. You're just opening yourself up to legal issues. And companies like that have endless resources for legal. So I just think it's just why even open that Pandora? box. But yes, mentioning tech companies that exist in the platforms that we communicate on on a regular basis is fine with me. Perfect. Because I've seen some of my students will change the name of the social media app they're working on because, and, and you can figure out it's Facebook because, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not quite sure why if they're worried that they can't name it then. But I mean, if it's just social media they're using, then to my mind saying Facebook, saying Instagram, saying TikTok, that's all fine within the context of a novel. Yeah. My only thing, you know, I think we're opening up to a larger conversation about companies and whether they're going to exist. We don't know if, you know, Apple is going to buy TikTok or whatever, right? And so we don't, like when you're writing a novel and the book comes out two years later, and the other thing you need to think about is the longevity of your novel, right? Like you hope this book exists in perpetuity, you know, has a very long time in print. And so when we talk about things like companies and also companies' intentions, or, you know, I think we're going to, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to look back at Facebook very differently than we exist with Facebook today. So there's just things I think we need to think about in that larger context, but we're writing novels about the current time period that we're in, you know what I mean? And it is social commentary, right? Writing a novel is a political act, right? Just the act of writing and putting that into the world. So we are saying something about that, but I tried very carefully and it's a very situation by situation basis, but we can assume that everybody knows what Facebook is, everybody knows what Twitter is, everybody knows what Instagram is. But yeah, I, I tread really carefully about that. Yeah. And certainly if you're writing speculative fiction that takes place 20 years in the future, then you would definitely make up your own social media because nothing dates a book that's supposed to take place 20 years in the future than cars that don't fly and teleportation that doesn't happen. Uh, Cece? It will all just be called Amazon, guys. We can just call it Amazon. <laughs> so Cece is saying, put all your money in stocks. <laughs> Cece is not offering any kind of financial or legal advice. <laughs> Let us make sure to say that. But seriously, okay, the it will all be called Amazon. <laughs> okay. The disclaimer is there. We are not financial experts. Please don't take our advice. <laughs> no, I think Carly hit the nail on the head when she said, why are you going to open yourself up to this? Like, here's the thing. There are novels set in, I don't know, Harvard, where murders happen. Technically speaking, if Harvard could prove damages, they may have a case. But the point isn't whether Harvard has sued or not, or whether Apple has sued. The point is, why do it? Like, what are you gaining? You're not, it's not, the reader is intelligent. The reader knows. I think it's great advice. And again, because this is set in the character who works there as a doctor, like we are assuming because, you know, of course, there's going to be conflict in the company. But of course, if it's just like, oh my gosh, I texted this person on Facebook, then it's fine. And and just on this, and I think it's an, it's another part 
podcast episode we should have is stay away from using song lyrics in your novels. Mm -hmm. That is a licensing nightmare. You use one line of song lyrics and you have to chase this company down forever. You have to pay for the rights to use those lyrics. This is not something the publisher gets involved with. They make you as the author do it. It can be extremely expensive. Same goes for quoting long tracts of certain books, like if you want to quote from the satanic verses or anything like that. So always be careful with that kind of stuff as well. As a warning on that topic, I had a client book pushed out a whole year because permissions weren't done in time to go to press. So, you know, it's a it's a very, very tricky, tricky situation. The other thing is the amount of money that you pay for a permission, so a, a lyric or a quote, is based on the value of that quote or lyric that represents the larger piece of work. So with song lyrics, even two or three words of is a percentage, right, of that song is so much more expensive than just taking a little epigraph from a novel, right? So in general, steer very, very clear away from permissions because it can cost thousands and thousands of dollars and much time. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll perhaps have an episode on those kinds yeah. of things coming up in terms of rights and licensing, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, Carly, sorry, I interrupted you and you were still no, carrying on with your query letter. No problem, no problem. So I just left off talking about the actual company that we were working at. So the biggest question for me about this was, I don't think the conflict is clear and I don't know why this person needs this job. This is the big thing for me is that when somebody's in a company causing them trouble or somebody starts to go down a rabbit hole, I need to know why they're in this situation. Because, you know, as a editor, like editorial brain, you know, as an agent that, that's thinking critically about this, why don't you just pull the plug, hop in your car and drive the other direction? Do you know what I mean? So I need to know why do you need this job? Why does this love story matter so much? What is it about the plant? Is it so magical? Like, it is the magic magical stuff keeping you tied to the place like there's just so many questions I have that are being answered I think this is very interesting I just don't know the stakes the conflict and, and why we're here <laughs> but it's it's interesting awesome thanks Carly okay Cece yeah I totally agree about the title I do think that like okay this is such a small thing but it makes a huge difference having the titles in all caps Carly has said this before and I've echoed her please it helps so much Please yeah. just, I made a note of that and I forgot to say it. So yes, just capitalize your titles. If there's anything you take away from this podcast, please, please, please capitalize your title. Even as I was reading the query letter, I was like, Kafka, okay, they're referring to the author. Oh, no, no, Kafka on the shore, a title, cool. So like, it's just, it really helps. Readability matters. I will be totally honest here and I, I'm probably like exposing my, my, my dark side. The sentence, it offers an ensemble cast with sibling love stories. For half of that sentence, I was like, incest? And then, uh, you know, because of sense sensibility, I figured, okay, it's not incest. It's like sibling, sibling appropriate love stories. But, you know, if you're querying an agent with a dark mind like mine, that might come up and it might be really embarrassing for me, the agent, not for you. <clears throat> Here's the thing. I very much agree with Carly when she says that she doesn't know what the plot is or the conflict or the stakes. I feel like this is the theme of, of today's episode. Giving us voiciness and giving us character is cool. Giving us plot is the most important thing. How does Jake discover these? the key to unlocking Kelly's guarded heart is in the plants? There's also a weird phrasing thing, like figure out how they will draw him to Kelly. Isn't it draw Kelly to him because he wants Kelly to like him? Maybe I just read that wrong. Or 
I don't understand. Is he asking people to like help him figure out what the plants? I don't understand what is going on. It is very vague. And one thing that I thought of as I was reading this, the conflict, I'm using quotation marks here, that we have so far, which isn't quite a conflict. It's more like themes, right? Are things like Jake will be forced to question the assumptions that he has made about each of them and examine his own shortcomings. You know, later in the paragraph, we get that this is a story about how we confront our weaker selves as we move through day to day. Okay, there are three books that I thought of, like off the top of my head. Dead Dead Girls by Nikessa Afia that I'm reading now. It's a Harlem 1920s mystery, like mystery murder sort of novel. My Broken Language by Chiara Alegria Hudis, a memoir, beautiful memoir, loved it. And like Where the Grass is Green and the Girls are Pretty by Lauren Weisberger, which is like women's fiction. So these three completely different novels with three completely different genres, and they could not be more different, these three novels. All of these books have protagonists questioning assumptions about the people in their lives and examining their shortcomings. And they all have people confronting their selves, whether they're weaker selves or probably their weaker selves and their ambitions. It's too vague. Your query letter has to be plot specific. And the themes, if you want to put them there, and sometimes it does make sense, the themes can't do the heavy lifting that the plot would normally have to do. I'm not saying there isn't a conflict in the story. Actually, if I had to guess, I would guess that there is. And it might even be a really cool conflict because there's this garden going on and I kind of like that. So the thing is, it's hard as an author to look at your story with objectivity and to flesh out that two lines of conflict or four lines of conflict. So this is where beta readers can be super helpful, not just to make sure that your writing is great, but like you could ask them, you could have a questionnaire when you send in your stuff for beta reading, you could have a questionnaire that says, what are the three adjectives that you most associate with the protagonist? What is the central conflict in your opinion? What was the question you were asking yourself? Will she this? Will they be able to like, what are the obstacles you see in this novel? Sometimes adding these questions, like specific questions, if your beta readers are lovely and they'll do it for you can be really useful because you'll get more than one person's opinion and you'll make sure that your vision is being honored. I have a feeling that maybe they're being vague also because of the magical realism and they don't want to give us too much, but I would say give it to us because we, we need to know what's going on. If it's the garden element and the plants that are making all of this happen, they're really key to the plot and the secrets, then really make sure that that's clear because that's really freaking cool. Awesome. I agree. Okay. Hard agree. Yes, yes, yes. Lovely. Okay, Carly, would you like to tell us what you thought about the opening pages? Yeah, here we go. So we're opening at a funeral scene. It's called a prologue. So right away, I'm trying to figure out, are we in character? Is it an omniscient narrator? Like, what is the scope of us observing this scene? And because it's a prologue, I'm assuming, yes, there's some distance, again, with this observing. We're trying to introduce a few things. Person, obviously, that has passed away. Family that is at this scene. And we're trying to introduce what the author calls this glitter, which I'm assuming has to do with the magic and the magical realism. So those are kind of the things that we're trying to figure out. And for the second time, I didn't mention this in my in my query analysis, but for the second time, I'm getting very strong Knives Out vibes from this, which is really cool. So, you know, if, if that's what we're picking here, the, the kind of dramatic family drama, kind of a succession type of thing going on, I think that's really cool. So I would lean into that. So yeah, I would just want to be a little bit more clear with exactly what's going on, who is doing the observing 
I thought that the author did a really nice way of easing into this uh, in terms of who has passed away. They tell us about the family, the obituary. They're kind of arguing about where the obituary should be placed. I thought the author did a really, really subtle job. I just kind of want to give an example of this because a lot of people don't really know how to tell us where they are like globally without saying like this was taking place and so and so. So I just wanted to highlight how great this was. So they said they were talking about where to place the obituary. And it said, eventually, decency dictated that the traditional obituary be printed in the Santa Cruz Sentinel in the Mercury News. So I thought that was a great way of just saying, you know, this is where we're putting the obituary. Therefore, you know, we're in Santa Cruz. Perfect. So that's a great example of using that kind of subtlety to tell us, ground us in place without saying she passed away in Santa Cruz. So I thought that was great. One thing was I found was really missing from this was dialogue. Because it was so observational, I would have really liked to be and seen a little bit more through dialogue. I know it was a prologue. And again, I'm always wishy-washy about prologues. So that's kind of my take on that. And then in chapter one, we get to Jake Ullman, who is the character that we were introduced to in the query. He pulls up to a house that he bought sight unseen and is a bit confused about what he bought. So I thought this one was really quirky, also made us not know who you should trust because Jake bought this house. He pulls up to it. And he's like, this is not the house that I bought. And so like, are we supposed to think that, are we supposed to trust him that he doesn't know what he bought? Are we supposed to side with, with him feeling like, oh, I just got duped into buying this house in California, which is probably not cheap. And then I pull up to it and it's actually not at all what I thought. Is that setting the tone for the book itself? That everything we think we know isn't actually what we know? Also very interesting. And so, so yeah, I also noted here again that we didn't have any dialogue. So for me, six pages, you know, five pages into a novel with no dialogue. I don't know. I, I think that we need dialogue. What do you think, Cece? Do you think every five pages needs dialogue? I do. Yeah, I do. I understand, like you, I think, figured this out with the query letter, you know, when you mentioned it was literary. And I think you're right. Having read the pages, it, it's definitely more on the literary side. And I understand that literary novels, like it doesn't have to be as heavy on the dialogue, especially in the beginning. I understand building characterization. So I get why the writer does this, but I still think a little bit of dialogue would have gone a long way. It's something I actually do. Like it's something I recommend that writers do. Like flip through your pages if you ever print them out or if you just scroll down if you're on your computer and make sure that you don't have any I think set of five is a good way to go. Like set of five pages with only dialogue or a set of five pages without any dialogue. Like this the balance is is essential. Okay, Cece, would you like to add anything else to that in terms of the pages? Yeah, I liked the prologue, but I think that if you're going to keep it, because again, there's the eternal prologue debate, then I want more and I want weirder, not weirder necessarily, because it's it's weird enough, but like I want more on the on the girl. The great niece is is really sad that her aunt has passed away. There's a line that says that she longed to be in her aunt's home once more, smelling fresh roses and snuggling in to read extravagantly illustrated stories. We learned that, you know, inside her aunt's home, she felt that she was very mature and that her aunt was youthful. That's kind of a cool inversion and that she felt like herself. That's great, but I want more. If this prologue is going to stay, then I just want us to, a little bit, to be a little bit more inside her mind with more specificity. And in terms of like chapter one, I liked that it was like the, the the setup was interesting, right? Like he arrives and the house isn't the house that he bought. That's cool. That's a great first line, a great way to introduce us to, to this first true scene since we know who this character is, right? Which is why I'm calling it the first true scene. But I thought that it went on a little longer than it had to. I also very much missed dialogue. And also as of page... 
So there's the first full page of first, the first chapter. As of the second page already, we get four paragraphs that's almost like a mini flashback. So essentially, he's standing in front of the house and he's like, this house isn't the house that I bought. Here's why it's different. And then we go back to the drive to his new purchase. And we get a lot of details on that drive. We don't need to see that drive. Do we need to see that drive? Because I don't think we, we do. Maybe I'm wrong, but but I would just cut that part. I think we need a little bit of the drive. I think that type of California landscape is really interesting, like driving out of the city into the desert. Like keep that little bit of like, he, he says, I think he turns down a dirt road and he has to like put his hazard lights on. Like I would keep that little bit of just telling us we're out of the city, we're into the desert. But uh, yeah, I, I thought it was too long as well. But you know, there's a lot to work with here. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to read the third query letter. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, thank you for the opportunity to share this query letter for my nonfiction book called History of the 90s, Volume 1, which when completed is anticipated to be approximately 75,000 words in length. 90s nostalgia has never been hotter than it is right now. I should know. I write and host a highly successful Canadian podcast dedicated to new stories, pop culture, and other memorable events from the 1990s. I truly believe that understanding the 90s is the key to understanding the world we live in today. Enough time has now passed to take an informed look back at the events of the decade and the resulting impacts on society. History of the 90s Volume 1 will cover a broad range of topics that will be featured in standalone chapters that include historical accounts as well as updated information obtained through interviews with people involved in these important events. Some of the topics to be covered include the rise of tabloid TV and appointment television, 90s doomsday cults, the birth of the World Wide Web, boy bands and girl power, Princess Diana and the paparazzi, and anti-globalization movement and Y2K. Let me assure you that this informative and fun book will not read like a textbook. A Cross Between 90s Bitch by Alison Yarrow and Larger Than Life by Maria Sherman, my book is designed to educate and entertain the average reader who wants a better understanding of the decade they either lived through or have heard so much about. It would be impossible to fit all of the amazing stories from the 90s into one book, so I'm happy to say there is enough material for two or three volumes, if not more. My podcast, XX, which is produced in partnership with the Canadian Entertainment and Media Company, has received nearly 2 million downloads and was honoured at the Canadian Podcast Awards in 2019 and recognised by Apple Podcasts as one of the best in Canada for 2020. I have a legion of dedicated listeners who I engage with on social media and they are constantly telling me they love the show but want more. In the 90s, I was a broadcast journalist working at radio stations in and around the Toronto area. And before moving to a career in government communications, I covered many high profile events, including the Paul Bernardo murder trial, the OJ Simpson verdict, and I served as Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Talk 640 News. I began podcasting first independently in 2016 and then joined the XX Podcast Network in 2019, where I remain today. I would love your feedback on this query and this project. Project. Thank you in advance for your time. Sincerely, X. Okay, all we have is this query letter. There are no pages. So, Carly, tell us what you think. Well, I'm so glad that we got a nonfiction pitch here. I personally work on pretty much 50 50 fiction nonfiction. So, I'm really, really glad to see this. So, if anybody's listening that's working on a narrative nonfiction project or anything kind of in this space and they think that we could help, I would I would welcome those critiques. So, so thank you so much for this. So, my first take off the top is the title. So, I think History of the 90s, Volume One, is a subtitle. So, I think we need to think of a title. So, that's the big thing, number one. 
something that's missing for me. The word counts on point, 75,000 words. One of the biggest thing that I want to encourage everybody who's pitching nonfiction and this author included is I love that they're saying like, I'm working on this popular podcast. I have all these legions of fans. And I just want to say numbers, 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 stats, 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 right? You can tell me that you're popular. That's awesome. And I'm really glad that you're pitching us while you're kind of at your peak in terms of the podcast career and, and everything like that. I think that's great, but it's very important to ground it in numbers because popular to somebody is not popular to somebody else in terms of what that quantification actually looks like. So definitely give us some stats here. I'm assuming in the proposal to come, that would all be laid out, but it's very crucial to have that because a lot of agents and editors will look at those numbers. You know, it's, it's really important to us. Engagement is huge, but there are statistics that you can give us about engagement. Instead of saying, I, I have high engagement, you could say, I have X number of subscribers. You know, I get X number of fan emails a month. You know, just things like that to actually quantify it for us is just so, so, so important. So that's really something that I wanted to hammer home with this one. The other thing I wanted to hammer home with this one was that they're pitching this as a volume one. And then they said, I'm so happy to say there's enough material here for two or three volumes, if not more. So that for me is a teeny red flag. It's not that this is a problem that would make you not want to be interested in this book. It's more that the way that the business works is there is no book two, three, four, unless number one is a absolutely monster success. It is so hard to get subsequent deals, especially in the nonfiction space like this. If you were to look at comps and things like that, I think you'd just be able to recognize how hard that is. So the first book has to be an absolute blockbuster success. And so we need to focus on all of the great, like don't save anything for volume two, three, four, right? We're, we're putting it all in volume one because this has to be a huge monster hit. And I think these things are really interesting. The appointment television, I remember, you you know, watching Friends every Thursday at 8 p.m. The 90s doomsday cult, super, super interesting. Obviously the internet, the boy bands, girl power, Princess Diana, like all of this stuff is so interesting and does ground a lot of the way that we have imagined pop culture to be, you know, in the contemporary age. As the as the author says, like we wouldn't be in this place that we are now without the 90s. It was very important in terms of all of these pop culture events. So all that to say, I think this is very, very interesting. And I would love to look at something like this. Absolutely. I would just need to know everything about the statistics and I would want to know that you're putting all of your awesome awesome rockstar ideas in book one so that's my take on this one and would that come through Carly then in the proposal or if, if you could just explain for our listeners in yeah. terms of what proposal constitutes absolutely yeah so my number one resource for everybody for nonfiction proposals is go to Jane Friedman's blog if you just google Jane Friedman how to write a nonfiction proposal she has this amazing amazing super long post that will cover everything so the way that I write proposals is we start off with a three to five page overview of the actual topic itself. So we'll be saying, why are you the right person to write this book? Why is there a gap in the market? Why are you the right person to tell it? Why now? Answering all of that and including all of these statistics that I'm talking about. Why? Again, that answers the why you, why now question. Then we get into the author bio. So that could just be one page in your picture. The next thing we would probably get into is with the comp titles. We would need more comps than this, but again, this is just a query letter, so that's fine. Usually in a, a nonfiction comp section, I'm doing about four to seven, you know, seven's probably too long, probably like four to five, ideally, because you want to say, hey, there's other books out there that are doing really well, but there's not so many that, you know, this is just another book in this space. And then we would get into the marketing and publicity section. This could be as long as you want. You know, if this person has a huge um, contact list in terms of how long they've worked in media and lots of friends and television, radio, and podcast space, you'd put all of that wonderful stuff there. You'd put in all the stat, all of the, the click-through rate stuff, all of the newsletter, podcast data, anything that you have, you know, everything you know about your audience, you'd 
put in that section. Then you do a summary of all of the chapters, what could be called an annotated um, table of contents or chapter summaries. That would be either a third or a half a page each for each chapter. And then your sample chapters. So some of my proposals end up being 90 pages long, but I like to think of a nonfiction proposal as a business plan, right? We're, we're asking somebody to go into business with us because the book hasn't been written yet. So I like to write really comprehensive nonfiction proposals, but not to scare everybody because I help with these things. So I don't expect everybody to do this by themselves, but head to Jane Friedman's website because she's great. I also teach a how to write a nonfiction proposal that sells workshop. I've done that before and I'll probably do that again. So just stay tuned on Instagram if you want to catch that. Awesome. Thanks, Carly. Cece, what would you like to add to that? I agree with everything Carly said. I also wanted to see numbers on the query letter, you know, and to be fair, like if I had known this person's name, I could have also Googled her, but you don't want to expect the agent to do that. You just want to offer those numbers in, in, in a paragraph, like the major numbers, instead of saying popular. So I totally agree with that. What I would say in terms of the scope of this is that right now it's like, a history of the 90s. And that is very, very, very ambitious. It's cool. I dig nostalgia. I think it's a powerful thing. The author clearly is passionate about this. So yeah, this this might have a lot of potential. However, having only read the query letter, I am skeptical about it seems like too much, you know, like, so the comps she offered 90s bitch is very much about how women were like vilified and maligned and objectified. You know, it came out at a time it came out in 2018. So, you know, Hillary had just lost the election. Me too was raging. It's it made sense to observe the 90s from the lenses of it was a decade where female empowerment was twisted into something horrible for women, right? Like it was very unfeminist. What was supposed to be feminist became unfeminist. So the angle in 90s bitch is very clear. And then the angle in larger than life is also very clear. It's this nostalgic, fully illustrated view of boy bands. And it's written by like a cultural critic. And it obviously discusses like everything from the hair to the clothes to everything else. And like it's humorous, it's very tongue in cheek. So I think that these are great comps in the sense that I think these are great books, but I don't get how they intersect with yours. Like, are you telling me that it's like part feminist, part boy band? I don't think that's what you're saying at all. Yeah, if, if I was going to look into this project further, I would just do a deep dive into the podcast because I think, you know, sometimes the author and the experts believe, obviously, there's so much content here, but as agents, it's our job to figure out what the hook is and what the angle is. And obviously, we always hope that the author will come to us with the hook, but I would have, I would just do a deep dive into this podcast. I'd listen to a ton of episodes. I'd see what the feedback is from the audience, and then that would help me establish what the through line is. But absolutely, I agree with you. This, this definitely needs a clear hook. It's just figuring out what that hook is. Yeah, and if you have a great platform that then, you know, figuring out that hook becomes the natural next step. I just, I would say that, you know, even, even something like the line, there's a line that says, and I can't find it now, obviously, but that, oh yeah, I found it. Um, I truly believe that understanding the nineties is key to understanding the world we live in today. So I feel that, but like, I want to know specifically, I'm going to draw a line. Too. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the hook too. Yeah. I'm going to draw a line from this part about the 90s to this part about our world. And and again, Carly's right. It can be really hard for the, the author to see this objectively. So a deep dive would definitely help. Also talking to fans, like seeing what fans are always saying, like what kind of feedback they're always coming back to would would probably be indicative of, of the hook. It's totally fine to find the hook 
after you've done your research. In fact, sometimes it's just better and smarter because you have all the research to back it up. I always say that the hook in something is a diamond. You can't fabricate a diamond in a lab. The diamond has always been there. You have to mine for it. It's about digging. You dig, 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 dig until you find the diamond. And then you can cut the diamond, polish the diamond, but the diamond has always been there. So that's that's my take. Yeah, I am intrigued. I would want to read more. Oh, and I would also say, you know, a small thing, you could always add a line at the end of your query letter that says a full proposal is available upon request. We expect it to be, don't get me wrong, but we do get a few queries where like the author doesn't necessarily know that it has to be a proposal. This does not seem to be the case at all here. This person is very prepared. So I don't know, that line might indicate that, you know, you know what the rules are when pitching nonfiction and that you have that ready, or even like a proposal is ready, but you know, you understand that you still need to work on it. So yeah. Then just to let you know what we've got coming up, Carly and Cece will be running a webinar called Writing the Perfect First Five Pages, and that will be on the 15th of July at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Just to tell you a bit more about the course, literary agents are tasked with recognizing great books quickly, which is why the importance of the first five pages of a story cannot be overestimated. No matter the genre, the perfect five pages will draw your readers in from the very start and compel them to read on. If you would like to learn more about what the webinar will entail, head to Carly and Cece's Instagram pages where you can get more information and where you'll be able to register. And then finally, we have started a Ko-fi page. So if you are able to make a donation to us there at Ko-fi, we would greatly appreciate it. You can find the link on my Twitter profile or on my Instagram page or have a look on the website under biancamaray.com under the podcast section. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or The interiority here needs work, and that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. 
We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is an extra special one. She writes stories about love and family for both teens and adults. She studied creative writing at Hope College and the New York Center for Art and Media Studies and now spends most of her time in Cincinnati, Ohio, and the part of Kentucky just beneath it. It's my pleasure to welcome Emily Henry. Emily, good morning. Welcome to the show. It's so lovely to get to chat with you. Thanks so much for having me, Bianca. I'm sure your ears have been burning like crazy over the last few months because on the podcast we have two agents who read and review query letters and opening pages and we often get people submitting novels that are about writers writing and our agents generally say don't do it editors don't like it it's hard to sell but they always quote two exceptions and Beach Read is one of them which they are always fawning over and the other one is Lily King's Writers and Lovers. Yep. <laughs> that was going to be my guess. <laughs> you know, both such great books about writing. And so we mentioned your name very often. So when I had an opportunity to interview you, I was really, really excited. Oh. So to, to dive into, we're going to be discussing people we meet on vacation specifically. And there was just so much to love about this book. So for our listeners, if you haven't read it yet, why the hell not get your hands on it. It's amazing. And just in terms of your writing chops, you know, because you have done so many things here that are incredibly, incredibly difficult to pull off. And I'd like us to pick that apart so you can give our listeners some advice. Great. I'm up for that. Awesome. Right. So one of the first things that emerging writers tend to make mistakes with is that they give too much information up front. They feel like the readers need a ton of context to care about the characters um, or to understand their situation. And so they're not very good at teasing the reader. Now, just in terms of this, I'm not going to give away spoilers, but you know, I can say something that's up until page 23 because it's right there in the in the jacket copy. You tell us on page 23 that Poppy and Alex have not seen each other in two years. And we know something has happened, but you keep us guessing about that. And the payoff only comes on page 327. So could you give us some advice about that, about planting a question in the reader's mind and how you keep them guessing without frustrating them for so long. Yeah. I mean, I can't promise that, that my advice will not frustrate them um, because I think that, you know, that's definitely some people's exact pet peeve in books. Um, and it can't even be mine. However, I do think that people think a lot about plot when they should be thinking about tension. That's sort of my, my feeling about writing, um, especially now that I'm writing these books that can be shelved as romance 
Cats, where it's like the plot is sort of secondary in a lot of ways. Um, but if there's tension, you're going to keep reading. And so one of the best ways to do that really is creating that question, like you said. And it has to be a question that you really want an answer to. <laughs> so that part's a little bit trickier. But I think, you know, with this book, I had this premise in my head, but I wasn't really sure how there would be a plot, basically. Um, with Beach Read, you know, from the very beginning, I knew these two main characters had the goal of finishing a book. And so then everything that they're doing, every decision they're making is all with, you know, the intent of finishing a book. With People, I knew the setup. I knew how I was going to be playing with structure and all of that, but I didn't really know how I was going to make it feel like compelling or to, like it had any forward motion other than the tension of like the will they, won't they. And so I think it was sort of like almost this like little cheat when I realized like, oh, I can just not say what went wrong. And honestly, like, <laughs> I think part of the reason that it worked so well is that I also wasn't sure what went wrong. I had a couple of ideas and as I was writing it, I was sort of just like, yeah, just getting closer and closer and then moving slower and slower until you get to that turning point of finding out what actually happened. And a lot of that was because I didn't know exactly what had gone wrong. And I wanted to see how their present day storyline was lining up before I made a decision about, you know, what they needed to overcome and how they got there. And I think that actually worked really well because the, the present day storyline made that decision for me. I like have been talking about this book so much as like writing it feeling like the experience of being in this weird time slinky um, because there are these two distinct uh, timelines and I would be writing like the present day scene and I would get to like a cliffhanger, like a moment that felt really tense, like that question of either what happened in Croatia or the will they, won't they has been brought kind of to a feverish pitch. And at that point, I would just switch over to this other storyline, this other timeline. And then what was happening the present day would always inform the flashback that would follow. It would always feel like you, you've you seen where these people are at. You've seen kind of wherever you left them, where the tension is. And now we're going to switch over, but I'm going to still play with that exact tension that we just had so that it really makes sense, you know, why what's happening in the present matters so much. And I think a lot of times, like you were saying, writers, like we tend to be like really over Sherry or to think that backstory is evil. <laughs> and I think that there really is a sweet spot. Like to me, you a book cannot really get deep into my heart unless there's, unless the characters have well fleshed out backstories. And not all of that needs to be on the page, obviously. And that's like its own can of worms when you're trying to figure out your own book. But I think backstory is why front story matters. And with this book, knowing I was playing with that structure, it was really nice because the backstory also was not just like unnecessary stuff that I was trying to insert. It was like, this is a whole half of the book is their backstory. So I think like, you know, one of the best pieces of advice that I did get for first chapters was like to consider creating a question. And sometimes that's like misdirection can be really fun. And actually, you know, this book does start with misdirection, which I feel like I can say this and it's not a spoiler because it's really like page, it's like the first three pages. You watch Poppy come out of the bathroom of this sticky bar and she sees this guy reading at the bar and she goes up and has this like horrible attempt at flirting with him that's just like so cringe inducing. And then you, she breaks character and you realize these are two best friends who are on this trip together. And even that I think is this little question to kind of get you in the door. And then after that, you're just creating more questions to keep that movement going. So if you feel like you're a writer who struggles with plot and you're not totally sure, like maybe you're a person who's always like looking at three act structure or, you know, turning points and trying to make your stories fit that. And it just never feels organic. I do think creating a really po 
potent question and having everything in the story sort of serve making that like something you need an answer to even more is a good approach. Yeah. And it's not just any question. So we say often on the podcast, it needs to be a very specific question. And so from early on, the very specific question is what is happening between Poppy and Alex? Why have they not spoken in two years when we saw them be such good friends? What is this big thing that they cannot overcome? So these are all very specific questions. It's not, you know, your regular romance, will they or won't they? Right. It's very specific questions. And we always say that's what keeps readers turning pages. And you just spoke about those, that opening scene where she's flirting with him. And that was a prologue. And so we often talk about how agents hate prologues, etc. But that was a really great example of when a prologue really, really works. So was that there initially or was that something that came with time as you were writing? It weirdly was there. And I had not really, this this book had this really magical like feeling to the writing process that I now feel I am cursed to never repeat. But yeah, I mean, I knew the, that was the first image in my head for these people. But then I had also figured out like I wanted them to be on the outs at the start of the book because that was going to set up this new trip and the stakes for this new trip. And, you know, stakes are what create tension. So for, for Poppy, it's like I needed her basically to make this be a book. It was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have these two characters. It will have the typical will, will they or won't they. But like this, the course of the main through line needs to be, it needs to feel high stakes. And so the question was, can Poppy fix their friendship? So what I used the prologue to do was set up why this friendship matters so much. And then I used chapter one to show, you know, their lives now that they're not speaking and, and the, the feelings that she has of loss and um, like, you know, this emptiness and this ennui that she's just sort of like, what's wrong in my life? And so then she's like, okay, well, clearly the answer is this. I need to fix this friendship. I need to take one more trip. And so then the trip instantly has stakes, which create tension because when things go wrong, you know, you know why it, why it matters to Poppy, why she really needs things to go right. So it was there originally, but like you were saying, a prologue a lot of times can just kind of be this flat extra information that you didn't need. Um, And the reason that that was a prologue instead of a first chapter was because it's the only piece of the book that's out of order. The rest of the book follows those two timelines of present day trip and then the previous trips in order from first to last. But I think, you know, when you're we're talking about when you're allowed to have a prologue, I would just, if you read, even if you don't write like mysteries or thrillers, if you read them, I would say that that's like a place to look because a lot of times, like I just, I don't remember if it was a prologue or not, but I just read Lucy Foling's The Guest List. And, you know, that book was so great because it's a mystery and the mystery is like, I think the first thing is like, you know, that a body was found basically, which is a pretty common way to start a mystery novel. And the mystery is not just who killed this person, but it's who got killed. And I think, you know, like even there's so many things from different genres that actually can be used in any genre. And I think that device of having that mystery, you can use that in literary fiction, you can use it in women's fiction, you can use it in sci-fi, like whatever you write, having that mystery, it doesn't need to be a mystery novel for a mystery to at least get you in the door of this story. 100%. But, you know, you also turned that around. So most mystery or thriller novels will flash forward to something in the future in terms of the prologue. Your prologue went back into the past. And and I think that why you did that. So, you know, I often teach uh, story structure and something that I've, you know, put together, which is based on a whole bunch of different structures is like a 12 beat story structure. And one of them is showing the characters in the before times so that you care about who they are in the after times. Because if you see a character losing 
something and you don't see what that meant to them. Like you say, you don't understand the stakes, et cetera, et cetera. And so your prologue took us into the past so that we could really see what it is she lost and why it was so important that she needed to get that back. Yeah. I mean, I talk about this a lot when I'm kind of like complaining about action movies. I think about recently within the last five years or so, I tried to watch one of the newer James Bond movies and it opened with a scene with Daniel Craig, like doing something. You don't know what, but he's in, I think, Mexico and he's running across the tops of all these buildings and full buildings are like being like are collapsing as they're being shot at. And you're just sort of like, okay, so we're plunged into this high stakes scenario, but it's the very first scene of the book or very first scene of the movie. We know Daniel Craig is not going to die. We don't know who any of these people are inside of these buildings that are collapsing. And it just feels so anticlimactic. And it's like, you're doing the biggest thing, but there's no personal connection. And it's just like, oh, a full city block just got destroyed. That should have been devastating. And instead you're just sort of like Daniel Craig jumping over buildings. How cool. Um, And I don't think we kept watching because I was just like so put off by that. It was like, that's not good. (laughs) If you're listening to this and you wrote that screenplay, I'm sorry. I was about to just make like a sweeping statement. For me, for me, who's not a huge action fan, that was not the most compelling way to tell that story. And you are assuming people are already familiar with James Bond and whatever. But yeah, like you can make something very small, devastating by showing why it very personally matters. I think when we talk about high stakes, I don't necessarily mean the world is ending. I mean, high stakes for this person. And so for Poppy, it's like she, you know, she's unhappy. She has um, gotten her dream job. She lives in the city she always imagined herself in. She's got good friends. She is, she's doing everything she imagined and she still feels this huge hole in her heart. And she's like, why, why am I not happy? And then because you did have that flashback prologue, you've seen her be very happy. And so she, you, you understand what it is she's missing, just like you were saying. So yeah, I think with stakes, it's like, it's not the bigger, the better. It's the more personal, the better, in my opinion. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so they, they talk about different kinds of stakes. So there's personal stakes, there's universal stakes, but certainly the personal stakes to me are always the most, the most compelling. And, and just in terms of Poppy herself in getting to know her character. So, but firstly, I love that you didn't know what the thing was because everyone always tells us we need to know and we need to plot and we need to whatever. And while I say to my students, figure out your structure, because that'll inform so much of the story. I myself am a pantser. I write to find out what happens. If I know what happens up front, I'm like, eh, I'm not interested because I know. And, you know, I, what you've said now at that resonated with me in the book. And it, I feel like if you'd known, you would have manipulated us a lot more. And I didn't feel manipulated. And that's the thing in so many books that I feel like I'm being manipulated. And I feel like you writing to find out what happened kind of reflected on the page because we felt that. Yeah. I mean, also, it's just really cool to hear you say that because that's like an exact sentence that I've often said. It's like, I write to find out what happens. And I'm the same exact way. Like, I can't tell you how many books I haven't finished writing because I tried to outline them and I knew exactly what happened. I knew how it ended, all of that. And it felt like, well, I already wrote it. And I'm writing very much for the same reason I read. It's like, it's exciting to find out like what happens and to see the story unfold. And I, you know, I know that's, there's no wrong way to be a writer, but it is interesting because I don't talk to that many writers who relate to that, where it's like a story is sort of like over. If I know everything that happens, it's over. But like you were saying, like having that structure is so helpful to know like the general, if you know a couple of the beats even, or in this case, like, you know, knew 
the central mystery. But yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I think like I would have been trying to manipulate the reader a lot more if I was sure. Whereas in this situation, it was like, okay, I can really convincingly write Poppy being averse to thinking about this and just kind of being like, I'm not going to think about what happened. I'm not going to think about what happened because I didn't know. Yeah. And it, it came through as authentic for her, you know? Yeah. That, that worked really, really well. I was going to ask you how you'd written the actual stories, if you'd written them in a linear way, starting 12 years ago to today. But then you said earlier that the end of each like today chapter would inform what had to come before. So obviously you wrote it in the way that we now see it. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about backstory here and I just want to break this down for our listeners because they're going to go, Emily has given me permission to write a (laughs) whole book that is about backstory. But here's the thing. So it's not just like we with her now and then we have multiple, you know, flashbacks and she remembers things in the past. So what Emily's done is we have dual timelines. Mm -hmm. You know, we start in the sort of present day. Then we go back to 12 summers ago. Then we come back to the present day. Then we go back to 11 summers ago. And so it goes. And as the present day story goes on into the future. So it's two very deliberate timelines so that when we in the past, in the so-called backstory, it doesn't feel like backstory. Right. It It should never feel like backstory. (laughs) Right. it's, It's dramatized. It is happening for us on the page as if it were happening now. And that is really, I think, what the key is here. It's fine to have 50% of a story what happens in the past, so long as you're not making it feel like this telling of backstory. Yeah. And I even think when you're just doing like the a book that's not like this, where you're just doing like a normal amount of like backstory in quotes, you you kind of still want that. It needs to feel absolutely essential. Um, and that's the same, you know, whether it's 50% of the book or whether it's like three little memories, it needs to feel absolutely essential to the front story. And I think, you know, I, I often think about my books as therapy for the characters where like the whole point of the book is to get them past or through this one thing, this one like misbelief or whatever. And so the backstory is really always about how that was formed. And like you said, this book, it's not really backstory. It's just, it's just the two timelines that converge. But even so, the things that are like informing the present day timeline that were really essential, it's like I needed that to do the work of setting up why the present day matters and what it is that both Poppy and Alex need to overcome. And just in terms of what Emily said as well, because I, when I teach structure, I have so many people going, I just want to pants. I I don't want to, you know, do this. And many of them say, oh, my story is not the kind of story that you can apply a 12 beat structure to. And I'm sorry, but you absolutely can apply that to any kind of story because in Emily's story, we have, you know, these certain beats are ticked off. You have the before, you have the after, you have the sinking or swimming, you have kind of the false victories, the false defeats, you have the all is lost moment. And you have, you know, that Poppy's flaws or shortcomings or her misbelief are there throughout the story. They are constantly making her her own worst enemy. So we see these flaws and later they become so important. So I'm glad you mentioned that misbelief. So, you know, we find out only much later what's driving so much of Poppy's choices. You know, we see her making all these choices and we think it's because she just loves this kind of lifestyle. And only later does she realize like this, what, what her whole misbelief is and then unpacks that. Could you chat a bit about that without giving too much away? Like at what point did you realize what her misbelief was? Was it before you began writing or was it as you got 
got to know her. It was definitely as I got to know her. Um, and like you said, it's like the the idea that you can't apply that structure to your own book. Like if you can't, then probably you don't quite have a book. <laughs> like you probably just don't. But for me, it's like, you know, if it's, if you struggle to think of it that way, I think, you know, I learned structure in college and I think it kind of now happens a little bit naturally. And, and that is one of the biggest things that I've realized with my previous books is the thing that makes a book feel like it's actually doing its job to me or like I've reached its full potential is when I get to that all is lost moment and sort of that like reckoning where I that character has like this big realization and that's kind of I've noticed that as a trend when I feel good about a book that's what's happened is I've gotten to this point where the character has been confronted with the way that they have misunderstood the world and they have to reckon with that and with Poppy I didn't yeah I really didn't know what kind of their obstacle would be what Poppy's obstacle and Alex's obstacle together would be and as I got to know her and saw her in the present day and then you know there's some scenes with her family that really helped me understand her more too writing all of that and then getting to the point of what happened in Croatia and why it was such a huge deal for them it really did just come from knowing those characters so well um sometimes that doesn't happen and I think if you're writing and you kind of get to the end of the book and you don't have that moment that you were hoping for where it feels like poignant or like the book has just come together in this way I think it, it, that's when just for your sake even you want you do want to start thinking about backstory you want to start thinking about this character's family and their upbringing and how that informs the choices they've made and so for an example that I don't feel like is too spoilery Poppy has you know this very sweet family but they're like borderline hoarders and like their house is kind of dirty and they've got a million pets and her brothers are like really lovely but they're very weird and they have these weird family games they play and she loves her family but she also grew up in this small town where she felt like her family and her she were both judged and it's made her um, sort of defensive and protective of them and it also made her like want to get away from her small town and kind of mistrustful of the people there and you know just very guarded in certain ways while also being like this person who's you know pretty social and outgoing and whatever and I think that's kind of what makes her feel less caricatured is that her interiority is not identical to like her exteriority it's like you see this person you're like she's loud and hyper and she's comfortable with herself but there is this deeper level where these are the things that she's really cautious about and that she is you know just really not letting many people in and so like if I had gotten to the end of this book and didn't really know where the emotional arc was ending I would have been able to look back at her family and think okay well she you know had this life in this town and how did that shape her what did that make her think about people what did that make her like think about herself and again I don't feel like this is like too spoilery because it doesn't really matter until you've read the book but for Poppy so much of her life has been running away and she didn't really necessarily know that and I think it's also helpful when you don't make your characters too self-aware if they know that they're running away and they're constantly telling you they're running away then it's not like you can have a big realization where she's like oh I've spent so much of my life just running away and or being afraid people would see me this certain way and so many of my decisions have been based around trying to present like this version of myself so if you're getting to the end of your draft and you're feeling stuck like it doesn't need to even make it into all make it into the book but I would really encourage you to like go back and look at yeah the, this this person's childhood and think like what role did they serve in their family and how were they received by their peers and all those questions and get a really specific backstory even just in your head for your characters we've got three minutes left before our interviews over I feel like I could chat to you forever one last question so something that we always uh, saying to our listeners is know your genre 
because when the time comes to pitch to an agent, when the time comes to pitch to an editor, and you know, your genre, Emily, has been bothering me because (laughs) your books have all got these like women's fiction beach reads covers, but your writing is to me not beach ready. And I mean, your first book was called, I mean, your last book was called Beach Read. But so where do you see yourself in terms of genre? And is that the same as how you are marketed by your publishing company? Oh, that's such a good question. I think, you know, from the very beginning, I realized I wanted to write commercial books just very well. You know, I I realized that's what I enjoyed reading. And I was just like, I want to feel like I'm creating exactly what I would want, which is a a commercial book with, you know, kind of commercial sensibilities as far as pacing um, and tension. But I wanted also to be, you know, paying attention to the writing on like a word level and going a little bit deeper. Like I... I mean, not to say there are lots of women's fiction and rom-coms that go deeper. I'm not the first person to do it, but I know, you know, I really do want that transformative experience for my characters and I would love it if I could cry while writing. I feel like that's like a good sign that I'm really understanding these people and writing the right portion of their life that's very meaningful. But I think you're, you're totally right. It's like, honestly, there's a little bit of a bait and switch, but I think the hope was like, you kind of, you know, it's like, we're kind of trying to capitalize on the fact that rom-coms have had this huge boon lately. And we kind of want to grab those readers, but we also want to scoop in the readers who are kind of afraid of or intimidated by romance. And that like, you know, I just get constant comments from people who are like, oh, I've never read a romance novel before this. And I really enjoyed this book. And now I'm like ready and willing to pick up more romance. And I just take that as the ultimate compliment to be the doorway to either genre. But you're, you're totally right. It was a weird thing where it's like, I didn't know if there was a place for Beach Read when I wrote it. Um, I didn't know quite what genre it was. And, you know, I think like Helen Huang, is a really good example of like a romance writer who kind of opened the floodgates as far as being able to talk about more serious real life stuff um, in kind of the mainstream. And once that was picking up, then I showed my agent Beach Read and was like, oh, could we actually sell this? Like I it was a book that I just wrote because it was what I would have wanted to read, but I didn't really think there was a place for it. Yeah, no, it's uh, there was a huge place for it. And we're so <laughs> glad you wrote that. Emily, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's been an absolute delight for our listeners. Go to our bookshop.org affiliate page. Uh, There's a link there for the book. Buy it there so you can support an independent bookstore as well as the podcast. And Emily, we hope to have you back again in the future. Oh, that would be great. Thanks so much for having me, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.